Well, church, may I invite you to turn to the book of Zephaniah this morning. Uh, Zephaniah, of course, being one of the uh, minor prophets, at least that's what we call them, not because his message is less important, just because it's a short book. Uh, So Zephaniah being short might be hard to find. You'll find that on page 789 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. You will be helped, by the way, we're going to deal with a lot of verses this morning, to have a copy of God's Word open so that we continually refer back to God's Word. This morning, Zephaniah uh, chapter 2, 789. If you're not using a pew Bible, you find the book of Matthew and go towards the front of your Bible, four books, and you will find the book of Zephaniah. While you're finding your way there, I do, of course, want to remind you uh, that today, immediately following our service, uh, we're going to feast. Uh, And it's our annual feast that we call Dinner on the Grounds. Uh, This is really kind of a mandatory feast for you, so I I hope you're planning to stay. Even if you didn't bring anything, there's plenty of food. I, um, uh, just because I love you and want to minister to you, I sampled the food this morning, and... um, (laughs) And I must say, it is once again delicious, and I can't wait. And uh, I trust that uh, we'll be blessed in each other's fellowship. What this really is, as you know, is just kind of a, it's a rehearsal for heaven. That's what we're going to do in just a little bit. Well, we're doing that right now, aren't we? Singing and hearing from God, and then we'll, we'll rehearse that wedding feast of the Lamb that we're all looking forward to in just a bit. And then this evening, I do want to just make you aware that tonight at 5 o'clock, uh, we're going to gather and to celebrate the life of Dick Trapp. Um, our brother uh, died on Thursday, and yet he is not dead. Um, even as Butch has read for us, right, Christ has come to give life. And uh, Dick Trapp knows that life far better than you and I do. And so we want to gather tonight as, as a church um, to celebrate his life and to support his family. And Dick, as you know, serves as an elder here and has greatly poured out his life and his heart for the gain of Hamilton Baptist Church. And so it's good and right for us to gather and to say thank you to God for him. And so we're going to do that tonight at five, even as we seek um, to minister to his family and pray for them in just a moment. So here we are in Zephaniah chapter two. We'll begin in verse four today. Hear now the word of God. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride. 
because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All, the kind, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation shall be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely. That said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, then your dwellings will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Our Father, we are reminded once again as we consider the book of Zephaniah, that you are a holy and awesome God. None can stay your hand. There is none like you. And so we come humbly as your people with a spiritual hunger today and ask that our God, the creator of all things, would reveal himself to us through his word. Even as we pray now for Ginny, Shannon, and Wayne, and Thad, and Katie, pray for grandchildren, brothers, sisters. We ask that you would reveal yourself to them who mourn the loss of their beloved husband and father and grandfather. That you would comfort them in the truth that we have even sung about today, that our Lord has conquered death 
He is alive forevermore. He shall reign forever. And those who trust in him shall be with him forevermore. Remind us of that great truth even as we consider your holiness today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned to you last uh, Sunday uh, in our first sermon in Zephaniah that I was been introduced to the medieval play Everyman by Mark Dever, pastors in D.C. Everyman was a, a play that was written in the year 1510. And it's, it's about the main character is this man called Everyman, who, of course, therefore represents every man. And God sends his messenger death to every man, to tell him that he soon must stand before God and give an account. The play begins with every man saying to death, Full unready I am such reckoning to give. I do not know thee. What messenger art thou? Death responds by saying, I am death, whom all man dreadeth. For every man I put to rest, and no man do I spare it. Every man says, O death, you have come when I least had you in mind. In your power it lies to save me, yet of my goods I will give you if you will be kind. Yea, a thousand pounds you shall have, and defer this matter till another day. Death responds, Every man it may not be, by no means. I am not moved by gold, silver, nor riches nor by pope, emperor, king, duke, nor princes. For I could receive gifts great, all the world I might get, but my custom is clean contrary. I give you no delay. Come here and do not tarry. Here every man expresses his dismay, saying, Alas, shall I have no longer delay? I may say death gives no warning. To think on you, it maketh my heart sick. For all unready is my book of reckoning. But twelve year, if I might have remaining, my accounting book I would make so clear that my reckoning I should not need to fear. Wherefore, death, I pray you, for God's mercy, spare me till I provided of remedy. I think this play is, though over 500 years old, it's, it's right in the sense that death comes upon us, as every man said, when I least had you in mind. How many are not ready to give an account before God? Of course, many in our, our land will say, well, there, no accounting is necessary. Right? Certainly it is God's job, is it not, to accept everyone. Of course, maybe not everyone, not, not the real bad ones, like perhaps Joachim von Ribbentrop. Death came for him on October 16th, 1946, as he was held at the military prison in Nuremberg, Germany. Von Ribbentrop was the foreign minister to Hitler and plotted the deceptions that plunged the world into that bloody war. And now he was condemned to die standing on the scaffold with a noose noose around his neck and he was asked for his final words. I trust most were uninterested, just eager for this terrible man's life to be ended. Most, but not Pastor Henry Garrick, who was assigned as a chaplain to the Nazi war criminals while they were held in Nuremberg. 
He, he there went to Pastor Garrick, and he, he preached the gospel week after week. And within about a, a, a few weeks, eight of the Nazi hierarchy placed their faith in Christ, including Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, the chief of the German armed forces, and William, Wilhelm Frick, the minister of interior, who actually saw the persecution of Christians. But not von Ribbentrop, not at first at least. He rejected Pastor Garrick, scolded him, taunted him, reviled him. He did so while he attended the worship services in which Pastor Garrick held. He came there not out of any interest, but simply out of boredom. And yet eventually, through the persistent witness of this man of God, von Ribbentrop too, received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so on October 16, 1946, with a noose around his neck and Pastor Garrick on his side, he was asked for his last words, which are, I quote, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. I wonder, what do you think of such a statement? Atonement for sins? Mercy for my soul. Are such things really needed? Maybe for particularly nasty people like this individual. But what about for you? Do you need atonement? Do you need mercy? Many, of course, think, no. I need no mercy. I need no atonement. I wonder if we could consider this morning the ancient words of this man named Zephaniah who wrote his book some 2,600 years ago. And consider his answer to the question, are we accountable to God? Zephaniah, as you know, uh, but just by me reading it this morning, and of course last week, is a book largely about divine judgment. It's one reason why it and others like it in the Bible are often neglected, right? Even in churches. Judgment is becoming an increasingly unpopular biblical theme for us to consider. And, and there's some, I, I imagine, some here today thinking, do we really need to hear this? If that's your question in your heart, I would say, yes, we do. And at least God thinks so. Why else would he put it down in his book? And last week we saw from Zephaniah that God's people were judged for their religious and their social sins. Now in chapter 2, we discover that all the world is, is accountable to God, for he is the God of all the world. And that his wrath not only burns against Judah, but against all nations. And yet, thankfully, even as we saw last week, we see again, that's not the only word the prophet has for us. Indeed, this, this passage shouts of judgment. But at the same time, if you listen carefully, it will whisper to you of hope. And those are simply my two points for us this morning. Consider, first of all, God's judgment on the world. And then, lastly, we'll consider God's hope for the world. The judgment on the world begins there in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, on the enemies of God, showing that they'll be judged because of their pride. There are four nations that are identified or regions that are identified. He starts with the Philistines in verses 4 through 7. Consider verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations 
a nation of the Carathites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. So there in verse 4, we see four of the five Philistinian cities mentioned. The fifth, Gath, is unmentioned, perhaps because it came under the rule of Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, about 100 years before this prophecy. Verse 5, you see a reference to the Carathites, or maybe your translation says Cretans. The Philistines, we understand, were a seafaring people originally from the island of Crete. And then God goes on to explain their judgment as one of depopulation. You see the, the phrases of there'll be a desolation, they'll be deserted, they'll be driven out at noon, no inhabitant will be left. In other words, they'll be empty, leaving their land as pasture land, as you see in verse 6. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. He then moves on to another region, that of Moab, Moab and Ammon, in verses 8 through 11. Note verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and may boast against their territory. So Moab and Ammon, as you know, are Judah's cousins. They are the descendants of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters. Lot, as you, you know from our study of Genesis earlier this year, was Abraham's nephew. So Ammon and Moab both were east of the Jordan. Israel was west of the Jordan. Ammon would be in the north of Moab. And this was actually, if you read the biblical account, territory that God gave these nations. And for a while, God protected them because of their their blood relationship with, with the people of Israel. And yet, nevertheless, you read their history, and you see in the biblical account, they have a history of opposition to the Jews, in particular that of mocking, which is why we read in verse 8, of their taunts and their revilings and their, their, what, their boast, we see. And look in verse 10. They, they shall, uh, this shall be their law in return for their pride because they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And so they're, they're very kind of filled with pride as they taunt God's people and seem, seem to find some perverse delight in, in shaming uh, the people of God. In fact, Nahash, the Ammonite, would take out the right eye of every Jew he captured. His son uh, humiliated David's messengers, sent them back only after shaving off half their beard, which sounds utterly awful, doesn't it? (laughs) And and, and by the way, to make matters worse, it's not just they're they're half-bearded, but they're with their buttocks exposed, right? I'm sure with great laughter and glee for those who caused such disgrace upon them. Remember Nehemiah who gathers there and leads the people of Israel to build the wall. The chief opponent is none other than, than Tobiah and Ammonite. Mocking the whole adventure that they, they uh, come together to build this wall. So they like to pick upon the people of God. And, and I'll just tell you, based upon Zephaniah, they're picking on the wrong people. Right? Now, we shouldn't pick on anyone, clearly. We shouldn't taunt and mock and revile anyone, for all are made in God's image and therefore endowed with dignity, value, and worth. But in particular, it seems to be a foolish thing to taunt God's children, whom he loves in a very special way, the very ones they chose to revile. And the result is they will be made a waste forever. Look in verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab, shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. 
a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. Right? And, and so this, this great judgment, he's going to, he's going to make them uh, a place of salt and a place of nettles, made like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The very cities that were judged, you remember, uh, in the days of Lot, their ancestor. And judgment is going to come upon them. And it did, by the way, in the year 582, four years after Judah was destroyed by Babylon, Babylon evidently didn't have enough and came to destroy both Ammon and Moab. And there would never again, for instance, be a nation called uh, Moab. That would never exist again after 582, just as God had declared. I think this is interesting that God seems to be very concerned about the treatment of his people. And God will, therefore, hold accountable those who mistreat them. I think about the leaders of North Korea and Saudi Arabia and China and Vietnam and Eritrea Many places like that, who restrict the, the education of Christians or their, their ability to worship and, of course, do things far worse than that. Well, one day, a terrible day, awaits all of them. They're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for how they treated his. But I think about what, our, what, of, what of our land. Now, we, we ought to thank God and praise God that, as far as I understand, as long as we have been a country, there has been no government-sanctioned persecution of Christians in this great land of America. And yet, is there another group in America that is so universally ridiculed than evangelicals? I mean, it seems like that's the sport of our culture today. That, that, that we're just give, that aren't the evangelicals idiots and aren't they fools? And let's just mock them and make fun of them and revile them. And by the way, I'm sure we brought some of this on ourselves. And yet, Zephaniah warns that God does not take kindly, does he, to those who persist in their taunts over his people. The third region you mentioned briefly there in verse 12, the land of Cush. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword. Just a quick word here. I mentioned to you last week that uh, Cush is the region that we call Ethiopia or Sudan. They too shall be judged. And then finally, the prophecy turns north and reaches its summit by declaring the judgment on the lone superpower of the day, Assyria, as you see in verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Assyria in this day was unequaled in their greatness and their power, um, and, and, and it led to them, Assyrians, coming to this somewhat stunning conclusion about themselves, which is recorded in verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, here it is, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts, Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. You see, he says, uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is the exultant city. You notice what they exulted in? Well, themselves. Even declaring, I am and there is none beside me. It's breathtaking. 
A breathtaking rejection of God as the only creator, as the only sustainer, as the only sovereign. It's almost this divine claim, almost ascribing to themselves a a form of deity. We are and there is none beside us. We owe our existence to no one. We need no help. It is, they might as well stamped on their coins. In ourselves do we trust. And yet, is that not the claim of so many today? I will do what I decide to do. No one can tell me what to do. I will be who I am. I will identify however I want to identify. I am, as we have said, the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. You see that Assyrian pride lives on. Well, how does the Lord respond? We see there in verse 13 um, that, that the destruction of Assyria is asserted, but it's described in interesting detail there in verse 14. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window, devastations will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. It's empty. The place will be vacated. Just a place for beasts, the mighty buildings now a roost and a rest for the undisturbed wildlife. About a month ago, my family were watching a nature show, and they, the nature show took us to Chernobyl, um, where no one lives. And I don't know if you've seen Chernobyl recently, but it's a, it was a massive city, huge sky rises, and now it's all returned to forest. And this undisturbed wildlife is just empty buildings. Well, they're not empty, empty of people filled with animals. And it seems that's exactly what God is promising will happen to, to Nineveh. It's so astonishing that you see there at the end of this verse 15, people walk by the deserted architectural wonder and they lose their breath in astonishment. The greatest and the largest city in the world in its day now just open ruins. In fact, this is quite a bold statement from this little prophet living down in this little hick country called Judah. Assyria is the world's dominant power in his day. They have no rival. It would be like a man from Moldova in the 1960s announcing judgment on the great Soviet Union. It would be unbelievable. We would think it's a silly statement even. Nineveh was the largest city in the world surrounded by a wall that was eight miles in circumference with 1,200 towers. It was 100 feet high and wide enough for three chariots to ride that eight-mile circuit side by side. The Great Hall was 150 feet long and 40 feet wide with lions of bronze and bulls of marble. The armory was 46 acres large. It was awesome and seemingly undefeatable. And yet in 1612, after a three-month siege, it was utterly destroyed by the nation of Babylon. One Babylonian described it in his day saying, the city, I quote, they turned into ruined hills and heaps of debris. 200 years later, in the early 400 BCs, a historian by the name of Xenophon passed by and found no trace of the great city of Nineveh saying it it was just desert sand. Well, what did God say? He said it will be a dry waste like a desert. And for 2,000 years, the mounds in northern Iraq remained undisturbed until the 18th century when they began to excavate the lost ruins and remains of the mighty nation of Assyria. Now, I, I read that, and I think, okay, I, by God's grace, am a citizen of the mightiest nation in the world today. 
You are too, if you're an American. We should read this and it should help guide our heart that we would flee from a Syrian-like pride that assumes that we are the everlasting kingdom and that we are accountable to none. In humility, we must remember it is in God that we trust. And as, in fact, you know, as different as all these nations are, what do they have in common? They're all united in pride, aren't they? Whether the the Moabites and the Ammonites, boastful mockery or Nineveh's arrogant self-confidence, they exalt themselves. And that self-exaltation at its very root is blasphemy. It claims God is not who who he says he is. God is not God. And and it, it blasphemes God. And I'm telling you, such sins, according to the Bible, will not go unpunished. That's why we must remember verse 3 where we left off last week. That we ought to seek the Lord in what? In humility. In humility. America too should humble ourselves and seek the Lord. I tell you with no joy in my heart that surely, can we not agree on this? Surely the sins in our land cry out to God for judgment. They do. I don't say that to say I don't like being in America. I'm just saying this land is increasingly plunging itself into sin, and we are not exempt. We are not above God's reproach. I think that is the clear point in Zephaniah 2, that all the nations of the world are accountable to God, including our own, because God has a universal reign. That's the message he's sending to his people. Nearby, nations like Moab are under God's reign. Those far away like Cush. Small nations like the Philistines. Mighty nations like Assyria. Nations to the east like Ammon. Nations to the west like Philistine. Nations to the south like Cush. Nations to the north like Nineveh. It matters not. God is the Lord of all, and all are accountable to him because God has a universal reign. And that will be a tremendous problem in their day because in their day, their deities were, were local. They just had a local rule. They had a land in which they ruled over. So you read Zephaniah chapter 1, you see the judgment from Yahweh on God's people and everybody would say, of course, that's his land. He has every right to do what he wants in his land. But then for him to go on and say, oh, by the way, I'm just not judging the people living in Canaan. I'm going to judge the people all around Canaan. Well, that would have been unheard of. And I trust incredibly offensive as it is no less offensive in our day, right? The idea that one religion can claim a privileged place over other religions today is told, we are told, is arrogant and outrageous, isn't it? We're told all faiths bring their own truth and no one religious truth has claims over all peoples and all cultures and all times and yet that seems to be exactly what God is claiming. I reign over them all. God made the world and all that is in it, and it is therefore accountable to him. And that's, that's why, my friends, it is not arrogant for us to evangelize. It is not arrogant for us to send missionaries to unreached people. It has nothing to do with cultural superiority. It is a loving declaration of the truth of the universal authority and reign of the creator God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And if God's universal reign, by the way, troubles us today, how much more his universal judgment? We see that here, don't we? It's common today. 
even among Christians, to reject the idea of God's judgment. In fact, what was the very first truth denied? What was it the serpent said? You shall not die. The very first truth denied was the doctrine of God's judgment. And he has been hissing out that lie ever since. And therefore, you're free to do what you want. There's no accountability. There's certainly no angry God who will judge you. And so we we dismiss God's judgment. In fact, we do so um, even within Christianity in, in, in three different ways, briefly. Sometimes we just reject God's judgment. Right? We just simply ignore about 30% of the Bible. We don't study Zephaniah and books like Zephaniah. We just say Zephaniah was wrong. He's wrong. Another way is that we, we sidestep God's judgment. And we say things like God is, is not angry with people. He's just angry with their actions. Right? And we have phrases now. For instance, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And there might be a kernel of truth there. But if what we mean by that statement is that God is not angry at them, that God is just angry at their sin, I tell you it's not true. He is angry at them. Wait till we get to verse 8 of chapter 3. We find out he is really, really angry at sinners. And by the way, I don't think it makes much sense to say that God's not angry at sinners, just angry at sin. Imagine you walking into your bedroom and you find your wife with another man. I mean, do you say, hey, honey, I'm not angry with you. I'm just really angry at adultery. I don't think so. No, you're angry at her. In fact, that's not a rejection of your love. The whole reason that you're angry is because you do love her. So the angry at sinners is not a rejection of a love for sinners. You can be angry at someone and love them at the same time. In fact, I would say those go hand in hand. And so, yes, maybe we just affirm the biblical account tells us God is angry with sinners. So the truth is we can't deny that whether we want to or not. The third way we get around judgment is we say things like sin is its own punishment. Right? In other words, God doesn't actively punish. He just lets them feel the consequences of their sin. This is very prominent today. Perhaps you had the misfortune of seeing the movie The Shack or reading that book that sold millions. Which is not to say there's not some good truth there, but it is, it is largely a book of Christ-dishonoring theology. For instance, the character, I think her name was Mama, who represents God the Father, says, I quote, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is his own punishment. Well, I don't know what you do with books like Zephaniah. Then. I, I, don't, I don't know what you do with the Bible then. When God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. So if you object to a God who punishes sinners, your problem is not with evangelicals. Your problem is with Scripture. And I think it's probably with your own heart, too. Because our own heart tells us it's good to punish those who do evil. It's good to punish those who abuse children. We have that in our heart. It's good to uh, uh, punish those who uh, abuse animals. It seems to be an increasingly popular position. That's in our heart, isn't it? There's this impulse in us that evolution has no answer for. And there's an impulse for justice. Even if we're not affected in any way, we want there to be justice. Why we're troubled by unpunished evil. Why we're angry at those who mistreat the weak. Why we create international courts of justice to judge Nazi war criminals. Why? Because we want justice for we have been made in the very image of God. The problem is, is we want justice on others, but not ourselves. And the whole point of this passage is, 
is that we all fall under God's judgment. His judgment is universal. That means you and I. And we're judged, by the way, not simply for our actions, but for our heart's attitude, for that of pride. And the judgment of the nations, as we saw last week, is simply a foreshadow of the final judgment on the last day. It's why Jesus Christ himself would use the imagery that that you're like a guilty man on the way to court and you ought to be reconciled before you stand before the judge because if you're not, you'll begin to thrown into prison and never let out. That's not Stephanie, that's Jesus. It's why we should seek God in humility, why he exhorts us to find shelter in him because this judgment is coming. And I wonder if the people of Israel, the people of Judah heard all this and they thought, good, I'm glad God's gonna get all our enemies around us. Well, you see, he's not gonna stop there. Let's come to chapter three. We briefly discover that the people of God will be judged because of their disobedience. We see this in verses one through eight. Just begin in verse one there. Woe to who is the rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are like evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. You, you, you read this and it's ambiguous as to what city he is talking about. And, and remember, there's no chapter divisions when Zephaniah wrote this. And so you're reading this and we just talk, read about Nineveh. And, and he doesn't really identify the city which he's now referring to in verse 1. And I think he does so on purpose. Who's he talking about? Well, we only find out in verse 5 that he's talking about Jerusalem. For what other city could make the claim that Yahweh is within her? And so this is a reference to the very city of God. And God is ambiguous to the prophet Zephaniah on purpose because he wants to drive home the point that his people have become indistinguishable from the nations around them. The Lord called them to be distinct, called them to live holy lives, to call them to show the world that God's glory and mercy and righteousness, and they have utterly rejected his plan, and therefore they are no longer fit for the role which God has covenanted with them. And it's perhaps because of their unique role that God lays out the charges far more clearly than he does with the surrounding nations. You know, notice in verse 1, they are called the rebellious, defiled, and oppressive city. The one city in all the world that heard the voice of God. D.C. has never heard the voice of God. Paris has never heard the voice of God. Budapest has never heard the voice of God. Uh, Tokyo has never heard the voice of God. Rio has never heard the voice of God. Nineveh never heard the voice of God. Jerusalem heard God's voice. They alone. And what did they do? Well, you see in verse 2, they would not listen. They would not obey. They would not trust the Lord. These are the people of God. And this confronts the great myth that has been pervasive in Christianity for many, many years now, that if you accept baptism in some church traditions, then you are safe from God's judgment. And I'm telling you, that's a lie. You see, these, are, these people have received the sign of the covenant. They are identified with God's people. And, and, and they're lost. And there are many who profess to be Christian, and yet they too will fall under God's condemnation. I say that not to unsettle any genuine believer in this room, but I do want to unsettle the hypocrite and the self-deceived 
that if you're playing with Christianity, you need to flee to Christ and yield your life to him that you might be forgiven of your sins. Well, you notice what's happening here. It all starts with their leadership. In verse 3, we read her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing to mourning. He begins with their princes rather than protecting. They're predators who do not hesitate at devouring the weak for their own political gain. And the judges there in verse 3 are no better. Rather than dispensing justice, they're like evening wolves who have found no food during the day. And therefore now with insatiable hunger gnaw at the innocent until nothing is left come daybreak. The religious leaders are no better than the civic. For we see in verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The prophets in treachery claim to speak for God and yet speak what only tickles the ear. The priests who are called to teach God's law instead out of greed did violence to it. They're willing to overlook God's requirements, even accept that which is profane, to sacrifice if they get something out of it. See, everyone who as God has established in positions of authority and leadership have failed. As Jesus said in his day, we hear Zephaniah now pronounce woe to prince and prophet and priest and woe to the people they have influenced. For we read in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does know injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. See, God is unlike them, isn't he? He doesn't, doesn't fail, doesn't do injustice. They do, and they feel no shame for it. Their conscience is seared. They have forgotten how to blush. Their sin is out, and they don't seem troubled by it at all. Nor are they troubled with God's warnings. For we read in verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a ram, without an inhabitant. You see, God's judgment on the nearby nations, even the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel some hundred years earlier, had a divine intent to shake the people of Judah out of their sinful slumber that they might seek shelter in the Lord. Surely the acts of God's judgment around them would lead his people once again to fear God and to seek after him. But it did not. For we read in verse 7, I, I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive, you'll accept correction. Then your dwellings will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. The experience of the other nations did nothing for them. And so they will take their place among the nations on the great day of the Lord, as we see in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. The Lord shall pour out the fiery judgment upon this earth. This is what the Bible will later refer to as the apocalypse. And the question you read, verse 8, the question that jumps into my own heart is then, who, who can stand when the Creator gathers the nations together for judgment? Well, I'm so thankful in light of that question 
that Zephaniah does not only shout of judgment, he whispers of hope. He says there's hope for the world. You see, Zephaniah is not merely writing to condemn sinners, though he is. He is inviting them to flee from the the coming storm of God's judgment. One wrote, like a tornado warning, the prophet's stark message of danger was designed to save their lives. This is why God put it down in the Bible, why I think he wants us to study passages like this so it would have the same impact on us. Do you hear the whispers of hope first given to a people he calls the remnant? Look in verse 7 again. It says, The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall gaze in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening, for the, the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortune. So in other words, out of the ashes of judgment, God says there will rise a renewed people devoted to God. And we see it once again in verse 9, there at the end. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Once again, we're told of a remnant, a people of God who would inhabit what was at that day part of Philistine, who would possess what once belonged to Moab and to Ammon. In other words, God's people one day will possess the land of the nations, which of course was God's original intent. If you read Genesis 1, go spread all over the world. And worship me as you do. We'll say, who is this remnant he speaks of? Well, the remnant are those who remain faithful to God. The faithful Jews in Zephaniah's day, the faithful Christians in our day, who remain true to God despite whatever sufferings and persecutions and temptations might come upon them. And God says for that remnant, their lot is not judgment, but blessing. The abundant flocks, he says, they shall dwell in houses that they have not made. He says, they will lie down in peace, he says. Their pilgrimage will end and God will bring them home. And so there is a hope for a remnant. But even beyond that, you notice there's hope for the nations. That right in the heart of this powerful word of judgment, when we just expect further condemnation and condemnation, Zephaniah gives us this amazing prophecy there in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. That's Moab and Ammon. I think against the world. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You see what he says? The nations will bow before the Lord in worship. What a shock this must have been to a Jewish reader. He said, we're the chosen nation. All the rest, they're pagans. God, go ahead and destroy them. You might discipline us. You'll bring up a remnant. We're okay with that. But the rest of the world, they're just going to get what's coming to them. But God says, no. All the nations one day will devote themselves to me. You see, God's ambition is not simply to destroy the arrogant, but to seek worship throughout the entire world. He seeks a humanity that is unified in their devotion to him as their creator, Lord, and Savior. And it's accomplished. See how it's accomplished. This is fascinating to me in verse 11. When when what? When he destroys all the gods of the earth. He says, I'm going to famish them. I'm going to starve them out. Now, you remember the pagan gods were worshipped by feeding them. Right? Through the sacrificial system. This is why God continually says... When you sacrifice to me, you're not feeding me. I don't need anything from you. Because all the pagan gods did. And if they were hungry, 
they weren't happy, right? We have a saying in our house, it was even last night we were talking about it, we call it hangry, right? You ever get hangry, right? You're, you're angry because you're hungry? Well, that all the pagan gods were hangry, right? Because you didn't, you didn't feed them. But if you fed them, they, they would get, get feel, have full belly, and they would be nice to you. This is how you worship them. But the problem is they're always hungry. They never had enough. And therefore, the nations were enslaved to the appetites of these false gods, these idols, just as we are today. I mean, aren't your idols always hungry? Are they ever sated? Is, is one pornographic image enough? Or does it demand more and more? Is the bank account ever enough? Or does it demand more and more? Is prestige ever enough? Or does it continue to demand more or more? Are the kids ever well-behaved enough? Or does it demand more and more? The gods of this world are never satisfied. They always demand more. And God says, I'm going to starve them out. They are going to die of malnutrition. Why? Because there will be no one left to feed them. The people will be freed from their bondage to these enslaving idols, free to worship the one true God. And notice where they'll worship there in verse 11. Equally astonishing, each in its place. The center of of worship in this day, of course, was Jerusalem. That's where God demanded people to come to worship. But he says there's coming a day in which every nation shall be a sacred place of worship. it's, It's not where they worship, as Jesus has taught us, but it is how we worship, that we might worship God in spirit and truth throughout this world. And so he tells us of this coming day of hope, a day of final deliverance, when all the nations will bow down to God in love and faith and devotion. You say, how is that going to come about? Well, it's going to come about when God's people do what God told us to do, which is to go and make disciples of where? All nations. And it's happening. It's happening. There, there are, listen, there are more believers today and more places today than there was last week. And there will be more tomorrow as God continues to build his church. And yet at the same time, sadly, 40% of the world right now has no access to the gospel. Like 40% of the world, if you walked up to them and said, have you met Jesus? They would think you're talking to the, about their neighbor. They have no idea who Jesus is. 40%. That's the case because God's people are not doing what God has called us to do. Because we do not have the urgency that God, I believe, has. So my question for you, as we think about us as God's people, Hamilton Baptist Church, as we think about our mission endeavors, and I praise God that it continues to grow and grow, my question for you is not is Hamilton Baptist Church's, uh, Church on mission, but are you? Are you? Are you sharing your faith? Are, are you going to go to Eagle Butte this summer? Are, are you going to go to... Ghana this August? Are you going to go to Guatemala this October? And if you're not going, are you going to be praying? Are you going to be giving? The elders are hoping, and we're going to talk to you more about this. We already have been here and there, but we're hoping in about two years that Hamilton Baptist Church will plant a church up in Lovettsville as that town continues to grow. We think the gospel is terribly underserved there, and we're going to be asking for, for members of Hamilton Baptist Church to say, we'll go. We'll go. We'll go because you know why? God wants worship in Lovettsville. 
God wants people to bow down in adoration to him throughout this world. And so are you willing to sacrifice and pray and go to see the work of Jesus declared? In fact, I think we get a glimmer of it in Zephaniah. We'll end here. But just note back in chapter 2, verse 15. I was reading this passage to my children last night, and uh, I read verse 15 to them, and I, 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 all I did was change the pronouns. If you'll allow me to do so, let me, let me read verse 15 and change the pronouns. And I want you to think as I do, who's he talking about? This is the exultant one that lives securely, that said in his heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation he has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by him hisses and shakes his fist. Did you hear it? Did you hear the echo, the whisper? of the coming exultant one, the one who lived utterly secure, the one who can say honestly in his own heart, I am, and there is none beside me. And yet, he has become a desolation. He did so on Calvary's hill, so that all who passed by him did what? They hissed. And shook their fists. They looked and mocked. He delights in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord deliver him. As they derided him in glee. Why was he destroyed? Not for his arrogance. But for mine. And I dare say for yours. God's vengeance was unleashed on the exultant one that he would become a ruin for you and I. He took the Father's wrath for our pride, for our self-exalting idolatry. And in the midst of mocking and the hissing of his enemies, he loved you by receiving God's judgment for you. And therefore, for the Christian, the voice crying for condemnation has been silenced. The the heart that demands justice has been satisfied. Christ has redeemed us, not by ignoring God's judgment, but by receiving it. And therefore, there is, for the Christian, no judgment to fear. For we have been forgiven. Have you been forgiven? So I'll tell you, death is coming for you, just as it did for our brother on Thursday. One day, he'll come for you, too. And will you say to him, you have come when I least had you in mind? My hope is you will not. My hope is that rather you will face him and declare, I place all my confidence in the Lamb." who has made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Our Father, that is our prayer. That you would have mercy on us in Christ. You are holy and just God and good in all that you do. And you are unimaginably loving to us that your Son would take your judgment upon himself 
that we might be forgiven. I don't know why anyone here would hear the offer that God would forgive them and say, no, thank you. I don't want it. Will you perhaps show them the utter folly, the eternal folly, of such an arrogant position? No, thank you. I don't want your forgiveness. Instead, will you show them that forgiveness is available to them this very moment, not by their good works, but by yielding their life to Christ in faith? Even as we have done. We are so thankful as we think about this judgment that Christ has received it all for us. Help us walk and live in gratitude and love for him who has died and him who has raised, that we too shall follow him into eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.